another great episode of Dream Business Radio. I'm your host, Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach, and this is the podcast to learn how to create your dream business so you, too, can live your dream lifestyle. By the way, I say you, too, every time I start the show because you're talking with somebody who has done what they teach. I have created multiple six-figure businesses. I now get to live out my dream lifestyle aboard my yacht and floating home, as we call it, with my wife, Stephanie, and our dog blue so buckle up for some truth and straight talk about what it takes to actually create a dream business and today's a big part of that because we're going to be talking about selling i'm the founder and creator of the dream business academy and the dream business coaching and mastermind program i coach entrepreneurs and small business at all levels how to build a business of their dreams so they too as i say can live life on their terms and i'm really excited about this week's show my special guest is glenn matson let me briefly introduce glenn and we'll bring him right on Glenn Matson is a seasoned veteran of the selling profession. He's personally built one of the leading franchises for Sandler Training, and his office ranking consistently in the top 1% of all trainers worldwide. His niche is working with financial service producers and field managers who want to shorten their selling cycles, grow their revenues, and boost their team's productivity and margins for profit. Among Glenn's clients are MDRT as well as Court of the Table members, who attribute a great deal of their success to the principles, practices, and above all, the accountability Glenn brings to their practice. Glenn is based in Long Island, New York, where I was just passing through there last week. But he's usually in the field working with clients all over the U.S. to help them grow their business, revenue, and profits. Glenn, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the, tel- on the uh, call so far, Jim. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. This is a uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because I, I do work with a lot of uh, beginner entrepreneurs, and you know they'll spend weeks and weeks and months building a website, designing a logo, picking out the perfect office chair for themselves. And I'm saying, I got a better idea. Once you go sell something, <laughs> when you bring in revenue, then you'll <laughs> so be true. then you'll be a real <laughs> business, right? So why? I mean, people by and large, I think they don't like selling. Um, is that what you find also, or? Well, you know, it, it depends on certain types of individuals, and I'm sure you've been through it, Jim, too, before, where you have those individuals that were out in the marketplace working for a company, and they're what I would call a specialist or a non-selling professional, and they're very good at what they do, but they want to stop working for someone and open up their own shingle. And to do that, they have a specialty, but they have to learn how to sell and get people to pay them for it. That's one group. Then you have the other group is that they are just phenomenal salespeople and they're sick and tired of working for somebody else and they want to go out and live on their own and be their own decision maker and have the results be on their plate. So some originate in the world of sales and others originate in the delivery and they find themselves having to go out and sell to get paid for it. So I usually find that there's two different pieces of the pie that some people fit into. So with all the small business owners that you've worked, worked with over the years, Glenn, in my opinion, some of them love to sell and they want to delegate all the rest, and then some want to just have somebody go sell for them, and they want to be kind of the producer, not in a sales way, but the you know the make it happen type person behind the scenes. Is that your experience as well? It is. You know, it's it's interesting. I always say, are you the kind of person that loves to sell, or do you sell to live? Right. So, um, which one are you? Right. So. If you love to sell or live to sell, then you have a passion for it, and you're usually exceptionally good at it. And what you'll find is we call them wake setters, Jim, which is the individual is a 
firefighter, they go out there, a fighter pilot, they do what they need to do. They love to find, hunt, and get the new business, but everything afterwards, the service, the dealing with it, et cetera, is not their forte, nor do they want to deal with it. But you have the individuals that sell to live. They love doing all the implementation, and one of the things they dread is actually going out and selling. So I usually ask which one they are in the very beginning, and I can tell an awful lot about them if they actually absolutely live to sell or do they sell to live. And just taking a look at that different differences will tell me an awful lot about their practice, their business, and how much time and energy they spend on rainmaking. Yeah, I know I was, I was uh, doing a little research. You, you have this thing called head trash, which is a term I use also, <laughs> that little <laughs> voice in your head that tells you to go back to bed, pull the covers up, and don't even try to sell anything. Um, but, you know, when I think – in my opinion, I used to be deathly afraid of public speaking. Now I run my own live events. I've spoken before hundreds of people. And, you know, it's like once you figure out it's not as scary as, it you, as you once thought it was and combine that with, man, I'm actually pretty good at this, I actually look for speaking gigs. So I don't turn them down anymore. And I think it's that way with selling. When people get out there, and, and, and first of all, I do believe you have to have a just an innate total belief in what you're doing and, and whatever, if a product or service you really believe it's going to add value to somebody's life, then, you know, that in and of itself should give you the uh, courage to go out there and sell. But how, tell me about that, how you refer to head trash. Well, when we look at an individual, and regardless of their role, it could be your staff person, it could be the person listening in right now, as an owner, as a leader, as a salesperson, as a, a relationship manager. So, Jim, we look at any role that we have. And as an entrepreneurial business owner, we have lots of them. When we look at people and developing people and going from a rainmaker to a top producer, then from a producer to a business owner, from a business owner to an entrepreneurial, these, these stages of growth. And all through everyone through their stages typically have to grow in three key areas. They have to grow in tactics and strategies. That's what do we do, how do we do it, when do we do it. They also have to work in their behavior piece, which is their goal setting and having a plan to follow and doing the plan when they're supposed to be doing it, right, the action piece. And then the other is their attitude. And the attitude, Jim, is everything in between your ears, in their heart, in their gut. So when we look at attitude, we kind of segregate it to your left hand and your right hand. On your left hand is things like what we call crucial elements of success. That's desire, commitment, your self-esteem, which people don't realize has more to do with your success than anyone really ever imagined. And then your successful mindset, i.e., do you take ownership? And on the other side, you have bravery issues. Bravery issues is when you know what to do but you're being challenged to do it. So bravery are things like fear of rejection, being seen as that person, right? You don't want to be seen as this, the sales guy. Um, it also be a concept of money. It could be you're controlling your emotions, guilt and worry, um, getting emotionally involved, panicking. So there's five or six bravery issues that typical, and there's typically three or four crucial elements that people have challenges of, that once they get them in line, man, they can start to utilize and do their behavior consistently, which gives them in front of the right type of people so they can use their tactics and strategies. So in our belief system, we believe that attitude drives the boat. Good analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
trying to stay with you and Blue and Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so when you, you know, I, I say nothing breeds success like success. So I try and get my clients, whatever their challenge is, to do, like, take a baby step. Oh, my gosh. Dude, I mean, it's kind of like when you want to lose 20 pounds. If you lost your first half a pound in a week, you're like, okay, I can do this. You know, you just get a little bit of progress going, and that kind of gives you your uh, your your bar muscles or beer muscles, so to speak. Do you do that as well when you train or, or like what yeah, kind of so, process do you use? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at goal setting, for instance, right, so behaviors, goals, plans, and action steps. Your goals have to be long-term, short-term, and daily. Your plan has to be created, fine-tuned, right, and then reevaluated. So it's scary to me that an awful lot of people will put a plan together and then they look at it at the end of the year and they change the year on it and that's their plan for next year. It's asinine. So, you know, people always say what's more important, the plan or the execution, but if you have a good plan, it includes execution. So there should be no differential. Now, when you look at the bottom right of that is, is saying, okay, if we have a plan, we need action steps. And action steps is all about discipline, vitality, and guts. Our belief, Jim, is, is that all goals, all goals should be converted to daily behaviors because goals, for the most part, are outcomes, behaviors you can control, goals you can influence. So if my daily behavior is, for instance, I need to make five outbound phone calls. If I make 20 a week, I'll get my two appointments that I need. Your goal, yeah, okay, I got it, should be two first appointments a day or five a week, whatever the number is. But your behavior is what do I have to do to get those activities done? And that's what you need to do and focus on daily behavior because that's your choice. So, yeah, we look for mini wins. We look for a scorecard on a daily basis, but we also want you to take ownership of what needs to be done and don't blame outside forces if you're not doing it. So just out of curiosity, this may put you on the spot a little bit, but I'll hold you to it. Would you <laughs> rather work with <laughs> would you rather work with somebody, Glenn, who's kind of new, I mean, maybe in their 20s or early 30s, doesn't have a lot of sales and take them or take somebody who's been in sales for 15 or 20 years but has just been plateaued, basically just making goals, keeping their job? Like which one would be an easier person for you to turn into a, you know, a good sales warrior? Sure, sure. And that depends. It's always interesting, right? Because your 15- to 20-year person, do they really have 15 years worth of experience, Jim, or do they have one-year experiences 15 times, right? So That's a, that's a good one, know, yeah. If, yeah, I mean, if they're just barely making it, then we have some significant attitudinal roadblocks that are holding them back from doing their behavior and using techniques. So the answer that I would give you is it depends. It depends on who has the right attitudes and who's ready to change. Look, we're both coaches. People don't pay us to learn. They pay us to change. And change comes from attitudinal, behavioral, and technique growth. So if I have a younger person and they don't have the right attitude, I can have the best stuff, just like you have the best stuff, but they're never going to try it. The mm. fear of right not getting it done right, fear of losing it, fear of, 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 of looking foolish, fear of failure. So if you don't have lessons, you don't screw something up, you can't get lessons, you can't get lessons, you can't learn. If you can't learn, how are you going to grow? So if I have a 20- or 30-year-old, I could care less about their age. I want to know about their tenacity. I want to know about their desire to change. I want to know about what pain points do they have that they're willing to face and overcome to get to the next level. So do I coach 20- or 30-year-olds? Yeah. Do I coach 25- to 30-year-old veterans? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what separates them is not necessarily their age or their tenure. What separates them is their attitude or behavior to utilize the techniques that you're training them. 
yeah. change. Are they ready so, to change? Right. Yeah. One of the one of the old models, which comes from the advertising agency field, I guess, and, and as well as others, is people that have somebody kind of raise their hand, a prospect, and say, "Hey, send me a proposal." And then, you know, I, I talk to people who just feel like they're in proposal hell. All they do is spend hours and hours creating proposals, and they never get to the next stage. What, have, do you see that as true, and, or do you see it changing, or do you have ways to get out of proposal hell? Um, yes to all of them. So it's, I see it happening still absolutely to the point where my eyes bleed. Um, in, you know, people turn around, and, and especially historically prospects who are kicking the can down the street or – they don't know what else to say. The salesperson doesn't know what else to say. They need that third quote. They'll turn around and say, hey, Jim, I think we've gotten pretty good clarity um, on what we've been talking about. Why don't you put some pen to paper and give me some ideas on what you think you can do to move forward? Well, right. if salespeople are trying to sell stuff, they want to hear that from somebody sometimes. They're saying to themselves, ooh, I have someone who's of interest. The problem is of interest doesn't mean they're qualified. Qualifications in our world are different things, right? What are the technical issues? What are the business issues? What are the personal issues? Are they ready to change? How does it impact them? How does it affect them? What's the budgetary restraints? What kind of decision-making process has to be put in place? Most salespeople don't know how to qualify. And because they don't know how to qualify, they become masters at proposal writing. Then after they've given out their proposal, which is what are we going to do, how are we going to do it, how much is going to be, you're a special sauce. You give it all to them for free. And then you hear all the stuff you should have figured out before you gave them the proposal. i got to go bring it to such and such. We don't get the budgets until the fourth quarter. Hey, we're looking at doing this project in the beginning of you know, Q1 of 2018. All the stuff we get after we've dropped our drawers and showed them everything is what we should have gotten in the front. And it's interesting. Only in sales do we give away everything for free in the hope of getting some business. I can't bring my son tonight to a movie theater, walk in with a couple of his buddies and say, hey, I want to see an IMAX, which is 20 bucks a ticket. Can I buy eight tickets? We need some popcorns, et cetera. And by the way, I'll pay you on the way out if we like it. Mm. Not a chance, right? No one's going to say yes to that. But in sales, for some particular reason, it's acceptable to give you very little information to make you think that something's going to happen. You're going to go back and give me all your expertise for free. In our world, it just seems asinine. So what we want to do is we want to qualify the opportunity, not hope for it. And right. when you qualify, it really has to be in the best interest of both parties, what's good for you guys and what's good for us. And unfortunately, most don't qualify. They qualify to the point they think they have a problem and then go right to solve mode. And unfortunately, people don't buy solutions to problems. They buy solutions to pain. It's a big difference. Right. Let's let's go to the other side of the desk. You know, one of the things, another old uh, old timer theory that's been around forever is <laughs> you promote a great salesman to a sales manager, and now he's you know <laughs> he's basically incompetent. So we know that. But let's talk about the role of the sales manager. How does a sales manager, um, you know, actually help the uh, the sales team produce more? Or is that I mean, you sort of touched on that earlier with the attitude and, and things like that. But that, that's a big challenge I see too many people have. They get promoted to their level of incompetence. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, it's interesting. I would say glaring one of the biggest gaps that small business owners have or, you know, that, that, that two, to, 2 to 12, 2 to 15 employees, you need to have a sales manager in there so the owner can stop being the rainmaker and the chief bottle washer and the top sales guy and the sales manager for them to run their business, 
they need someone coming in and running the sales department. And the classic mistake is I'll take my best sales guy and make him the manager. He has the respect of everybody, knows the systems, he knows, et cetera. Let's do that. The reality is is an entirely different set of roles and responsibilities that a salesperson has to do than a manager does. Now, interesting, one of the unfortunate, one of the the roadblocks that most salespeople have is this thing called need for approval, Jim. It's it's fear of rejection. It's because they have it, they're immensely good at getting people to like them. They're really good at getting trust real fast. Um, they know everybody, but they have a tough time planting their feet. They have a tough time asking tough questions sometimes. They want to be the nice guy. So when we switch that over to management, and now they have to hold people accountable. They have to have confrontational conversations. They have to be, quote, unquote, the supervisoral hat, right, how they're doing within the context of the team and how they're doing within their goals. That's the supervisor's job. Most managers are not great at supervising at all. They did a study that said that 88% of the people surveyed want to be held more accountable than they're held. 88% of them said that. Of those people that said it, more than 90% said the only time they're held accountable is when something's wrong. Then they surveyed the same group of people but their management team. Do you like holding others accountable? The leadership team said no. So it's interesting. Everyone looks at accountability as a negative. Accountability is not, hey, I want to make sure you're doing it right because you're doing it wrong. Accountability is just making sure that we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing. So a lot of times as a manager, and again in today's day and world, some of them have changed it to functional leadership, which is when you're in bigger organizations. But when you're in a small organization, you have to be very nimble. And when you look at management, it's communication, follow through, there's, there's about 17 different key elements to make a good manager. And not those 17 elements are not the same as being a great sales guy. Now, some of them are listening skills, questioning skills, getting unemotional, etc. But some salespeople have learned those traits, as you know, Jim, and are exceptionally good in that role. They often have a tough time transferring those into their role as a manager. So, you know, I was with an owner the other day, um, maybe apropos with some of the people listening in. He has six staff, right? He has a three. On top of that, he's got three RMs, which are relationship managers. He's a chief bottle washer, but he also has a sales manager. Now, when I'm talking with Scott, one of the issues is, is that as he's meeting with and having a conversation, when his staff come in and they do something wrong, he blows a gasket. He, he gets very emotional. So therefore, he has the, the culture sideways, right accountability sideways, got a whole bunch of stuff. And because people f- realize that your staff will listen to what you tell them to do with one ear, and they watch what you do with two eyes. They watch accountability. They watch excuse-making. They watch emotional involvement. They watch do you take responsibility. They watch how fun do you have. All those things, they get a sense of culture based on the leader. And the leader historically always wants his culture to be better, but yet he or she is the one that created it. So you can't have the mindset of do as I say, not as I do. So, when we're, you know, this one individual had a tough time because in front of a prospect, he would never lose his cool. But in front of staff, he loses his cool all the time. So the same competency, choosing to use it entirely different because of the role. Now, his mindset was, that's BS because I pay him. He said, no, it's 
sticky look, why you're doing and how you're doing it, you're not creating the results that you're looking for. You're actually creating quite the opposite. So when he realized that how he was handling it was actually having an adverse impact on fixing it, it became easier. But again, mm. those roles change. How you deal with them are different. Yeah, I'm, I'm quickly running out of time. I'd love to keep talking with you. I got, so I'm going to squeeze in one more question. Um, you bet. So for an entrepreneur, someone who's an entrepreneur usually starts a business based on they have a skill, uh, whether it be accounting or they're good at landscaping or whatever it is. They take that skill and they think, well, I can create a business. But how do, how do they transfer their, their ability to do something, to deliver something, and how do they become, you know, what's the first thing they should do um, to become good at sales? That's a pretty small question, I realize. You yeah, I was going to say, that could, be, that could be half a day right there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm giving you three minutes. <laughs> yeah, I got it. So let's take a look at the majority of those people who are specialists in one thing and said, hey, I want to go out on my own, historically have a track record of, track record of expertise, right? They have, they have people who already know that they're good at what they do. So if they already have that, sometimes what you want to do is called a mentorship group, which is starting to get a sense of those individuals that are part of your inner circle saying, hey, I'm thinking about what are your thoughts? Because one of the things that's very interesting is you can have the best laid plan. You can have an unbelievable marketing plan. But marketing and selling is two different things. So what we need to have an understanding of is how you get in front of people who are in the mode or in the mindset to buy what you're selling. So how are you going to get in front of those people? The second is how are you going to make sure that when you leave, they're a client of yours or not, not in between. So when we look at this, a lot of us put together marketing plans. We start looking at what we're going to do in LinkedIn and all the, the drips that we're going to do and the white papers we have to write and et cetera. That's all to create branding and awareness. At the end of the day, when you're sitting face-to-face -face with someone, how would you get there and what are you going to say? Everything else is an enhancement, and I think today's day and age with LinkedIn and all the high-tech stuff, people forget that you've got to get those two basic fundamentals taken care of, which is how are you going to get in front of people, and once you're in front of them, how are you going to make sure they pay you? It's good stuff. Man, I could talk to you forever. This has uh, been a great interview, Glenn. How can people learn more about you and like where you're located and all that good stuff? You got it, Jim. So they can go to two different areas. Probably the easiest is my website. It's the way that Sandler has it done since we're a network and a franchise network. It's my last name at Sandler. So it's Matson, M-A-T-T-S-O-N, period, at Sandler.com. So um, another way is you can always call my office, and my office prefix number is 631, and then it's Sandler. So it's 631-726-3537. And on the website, they're more than welcome to download Why Do Coaching. We have coaching stuff in there. We have a whole bunch of white papers on head trash and entrepreneurial and the four stages of growth. We do an awful lot of coaching, Jim, on what we call the blind spot, which is helping entrepreneurs really become from – being someone who's exceptionally good at getting to one million, a million five, is how do we get from a million five to five to seven to 12 million without working harder? And it's really good looking stuff. at how to, yeah, transform your, your business into the next level because, again, we have so many blind spots we don't even see it. Glenn, this has been a lot of fun, man. I'm really happy we connected. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show, and I hope everyone was listening and learned some good stuff. Awesome. Hey, folks, that wraps up this very special edition of Dream Business Radio Show. 
Thanks to the Dream Business Mastermind and Coaching Program for sponsoring the show. Again, you get all the details at dreambizcoaching.com, dreambizcoaching.com. Thank you to my team members for making what I do look so doggone easy. <laughs> Without them, I don't know what I'd be doing. But watch for another great episode this time next week. Until then, just say yes. Create your dream business so you, too, can live your dream lifestyle. My name is Jim Palmer, and you take good care. <laughs>